0: A Spontaneous and Unrehearsed Interview Welcome to the 72nd episode of Curiosityness I am the host of the show my name is Travis DeRose. Welcome. Thanks for being here. And this episode I have on Stefan Al, and he's an architect and urban designer, but he's also the author of a book called The Strip, subtitle Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream. So we dive into... Like the architecture and design of Las Vegas, because it's extremely unique. And um, Stefan shares some uh, interesting thoughts and perspectives on that stuff, like you know how important the pool is, and you know why these you know uh, casinos and resorts were themed in the 90s, why that happened, and the Disneyfication, uh, as he calls it, of that stuff. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, all this stuff is designed with a purpose. And it's designed because people want it that way. So it kind of reflects like the larger American culture at the time. And uh, Stefan does a really good job of kind of breaking that down and explaining what that really all means. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode and uh, I'll, I'll let Stefan get to it. So without further ado, here's episode 72 right now. All right, Stefan, how you doing?
1: Very good, uh, Travis, and uh, thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah, hell yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. I just, you know, I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk to you because this stuff is, uh, I mean, myself personally, I really find architecture and stuff interesting. You know, I don't have any, any training on mm-hmm. it or anything, but I, I find myself a bit like George Costanza where I've always wanted mm-hmm. to pretend I was an architect, you know? But, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I, it's just, I don't know. I just enjoy it. So, and I, I mean, obviously you do too, I would assume.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's something, I mean, we all live in a building, right? We all work in buildings and we spend so much time in buildings. So it's, uh, it's occasionally, it's nice to talk about, you know, what these buildings mean and how they come to be. And, and that's, uh, that's what I like to do
0: right no totally yeah it's something that inevitably everybody experiences and affects them so and we you know we're all pretty familiar with what you know architecture is but you're also an urban designer so does what, what does that mean exactly
1: so i uh, that means when you're d- doing more than just a single building or a very large building that has a lot of kind of urban components like plaza so So think about, let's say, an area of like five or six buildings and and a little park in the middle. Or you can even think of an entire new district, uh, an entire new uh, neighborhood. Or sometimes uh, we even design entirely new, uh, new cities. So I work for a global design firm. And we do a lot of work in the U.S., but also in Asia because it's urbanizing very quickly. Um, and you know we have a lot of urban design work in uh, in China, for instance, right, which has urbanized um, kind of beyond uh, imagination, adding millions and millions of people to their uh, cities. So that means a lot of work for people like me, who study and and design cities. Uh, so yeah, that's my my day job uh, essentially, uh, working as an architect and as a designer, and then at the same time. Um, I also write about architecture and, and cities. Um, so, uh, and then I, I teach occasionally at uh, various institutions. But, uh, but yeah, I love talking about architecture. I can talk about it all day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And everyone likes that, right? But I—I uh, but uh, I mean, a lot of my my books, I I try to focus on on topics that are kind of important and relevant, but also may speak to to a wider audience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so let's dive into it because I mean, the way I kind of discovered you was from your book, uh, The Strip, um, subtitle Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream, and mm-hmm. dude, it's just like it's extremely fascinating just the whole well i mean i guess what kind of initially or how do we do this i don't know help us dive into the the architecture and urban design of las vegas and what why it's you know maybe interesting or important i guess
1: yeah well you know this kind of hits this essential note of my work which is making architecture more relevant to a wider audience and you know, Las Vegas is one of those places where, you know, a lot of people go there, uh, just, you know, tourists, uh, and they may not have an innate interest in architecture, but they all want to learn about the hotels they're staying at. They're going to see the latest hotel, what it looks like. And, and recently there was a poll by the American Institute of Architects, what was the most kind of popular modern building, and that was the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. um, more than any other kind of modern architecture, let's say from Frank Gehry or kind of famous architects. Um, and I think that's really kind of struck a chord with me because uh, I realized that, you know, it, 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 Las Vegas is May, or at least this trip is May, architecture kind of more universally likable, or at least it, it peaks in managed to pique an interest in architecture that you know very few other places do uh so that's why i thought you know this would be a, a good topic uh for uh, for a book uh but then other than that if you look at the strip what's really interesting about it is that it's changing so quickly and it's very much uh reinventing itself every decade or so and I decided to tell that story uh, in the book. How, from you know, all the way back in the '40s, they were they were doing these small saloon-style casinos in the spirit of the Wild West. To so today, uh, you have the most modern uh, buildings uh, imaginable. Uh, so, so that trajectory over the past seventy years—that's that's what I, I wrote about and uh, linking that to kind of trends elsewhere in the U.S. So that's why it was titled the way it was, uh, Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream, because it's, it's somewhat uh, reflective of whatever people kind of dream about or, or aspire to, uh, because all of these images that, that people wanted, uh, they were built right there on the strip.
0: So it would literally like they would literally kind of see what the American culture was after what they wanted and Las Vegas would just do it.
1: Yeah, because there was a couple of unique conditions. Well, well, first of all, uh, it's the strip was built outside of Las Vegas city limits. So a lot of people don't realize when they go to uh, what they think is Las Vegas. They're and, and if they're staying on the strip, they're actually not in the city of Las Vegas. They're outside of of city limits. Oh. Um, they're in uh, I think it's called yeah, the Paradise. Uh, which is part of an unincorporated county, like Clark County. So it's it's technically not the city of Las Vegas. And the reason why they started building resorts there was that they would not be subject to city taxes, but also not to city zoning. Uh Essentially, they could build whatever they wanted without kind of city hall interfering because uh, under the county, the uh, regulation is a lot uh, looser, at least uh, in Clark County. Right. Uh, so there were no historic preservation committees or, 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 gov- or, or communities that kind of disrupted uh, what was going to become a very kind of fast-paced development. So there's, there's that uh, kind of unique set of regulations or lack thereof, I should say. But, but then on the other hand, you have very intense competition. You have a single street, maybe four miles long, with maybe twenty different uh, resorts all competing against each other, mm-hmm. and that creates a very kind of unique dynamic. Uh, you know, they're always trying to outdo the other, um, and as a result, they would always, you know, build uh, the latest of the latest. Uh, so, so from very early on, they really had a peak on what was uh, what was trending, and at the same time, you have to bring people in from far away, right? It's it's mainly bringing tourists in first from Southern California, where where you are, I believe, right? Yep, correct. Uh, to, uh, to, to Northern California, but now increasingly uh, from more places in the U.S. and there's even a, a small percentage of international travelers. Today, But um, in order to get them in, they, they needed to offer something. Uh, and in Las Vegas, it was always about, you know, going after the, the latest trend and then doing it to, the, to such an extent uh, that almost over the top that, you know, you, you, you would not be able to avoid it,
0: right, even yeah. if you
1: wanted to. Uh, and and that kind of led to that kind of unique unique conditions that it was really quite reflective um, of what was uh, trending because as, as soon as you know a new thing came in, all the old st- stuff was discarded, uh, imploded. Uh, and Las Vegas also became known uh, for its implosions in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they imploded uh, these resorts, and they imploded them with fireworks. So it was really like a uh, a unique kind of visual spectacle that they used to introduce new uh, resorts. But the reason why they uh, why they did that is is simply because you know things. Things outdated very quickly when these uh, new trends were imported. So when one resort went after, um, let's say, uh, Disneyland, right, which happened in the, in the late 90s, uh, the early 90s, uh, and when they were trying to chase after families with, you know, Treasure Island and the Mirage with the erupting volcano. mm mm-hmm. Uh, very soon when, when, when it turned out that, you know, that became the new trend or the new norm, all the other ones, they very quickly retrofitted themselves to kind of become that new, uh, new trend or a new, new paradigm. They, they had to keep up with the Joneses, so to say. Yeah. Uh, and that's that dynamic is really quite quite interesting and and that's why i think the strip is so exciting for an architect because there's really uh so much change and there's kind of so much innovation that's happening uh and you could really say that um you know that that makes the place really exciting whereas other places so i live in new york right it's it's there's urban development but certainly not as much uh, and if you would visit New York 10 years from now, you know, you you very much recognize it. And I would say we would be 95% the same. But Las Vegas, uh, especially during some periods of kind of heavy construction activity, like the 90s was really big, the 1950s. You would not recognize it if you would come 10 years later. Uh, it, would, it would look completely different. Right. Uh, and there's few places like that in the world. I mean, we do a lot of work in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is one of those places, maybe more, even more extreme than Las Vegas. Oh. And over 30 years, really added like 15 million people. It's gone from 300,000 to like 15 million. Wow. So you can imagine uh, how how that is. But uh, but in the United States, I think the Strip or Las Vegas really stands out. Uh, for a long time it was United States fastest growing Metropolis uh, I think for about two decades The 1980s and The, and the 1990s uh, Probably very close to up to the kind of 2008 global financial uh, Crisis It was uh, one of the Fastest growing cities in the US Right and, and then it became one of the fastest shrinking cities For a couple of years But now it's, uh, it's recovered fully yeah.
0: Oh really? I didn't realize it was it was shrinking like that quickly. When was that the, Like the two thousands? Yeah,
1: right after the crisis, uh, uh, Las Vegas kind of led the nation in terms of uh, foreclosures, and that's you know part of the problem is with the economic base. It's uh-huh. not very diverse. It's mainly kind of hospitality, gaming, uh, and 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 that's an industry that's not really uh, recession proof, right? All that is discretionary spending if. If you're out of a job, the the, the last thing you're probably going to do is, is take a Las Vegas vacation.
0: Yeah. Well, unless you unless you're a good gambler and you are confident <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're right. A poker player. Yeah. Man, okay, so this is interesting. so it's like it's just the incredible like uh, competition between all these resorts that really you know, drive them to create this new stuff. Um Is that, That, I mean, is that pretty much it? Yeah. yeah. It's
1: it's as simple as that, you know, one, one person puts up a sign and then the neighbor wants to put up a a bigger sign. And then the other neighbor wants to put up an even bigger sign. Right. And and that started already, I would say in the, in the fifties, you really saw the impact of that. And it led to some areas that were completely covered in neon signage. And Las Vegas, some areas had, had so much neon signage that entire buildings were enveloped in, in neon, and it completely <laughs> changed the atmosphere. Uh, it would be just as bright at night as it was almost as as during the day, and also the the heat that would come from all the light bulbs uh-huh. really kind of changed the um, changed the the feeling. Uh, it was almost like uh, walking through a, a toaster and being warmed up on both sides, like a a toaster, two story stalls. But that, that really was happening in the fifties and the sixties. And what was so interesting that during that time, uh, Las Vegas was a little bit, the capital of neon signage. Mm -hmm. And there's a great quote by Tom Wolf who who visits the, the city, I think in 1963 and, he he says that Las Vegas is the only city in the world that's defined by signs, not trees or monuments, but it's by neon signs, and and he finds that uh, marvelous because because for him that goes to show that Las Vegas is a monument of the of the people because the people that were d- putting up these signs, they were designing these signs. Uh Those are people you know without formal education. they were just commercial sign artists that weren 't really tr- trained to do that, and they drew their inspiration from very unconventional sources uh, i and I say unconventional like architects they would you know they would be officially trained they for a long time they took their inspiration from from grain silos and and ocean liners, as as the modernists did. But but these sign artists in the 1960s, they took their inspiration from pop culture. Oh. And for Tom, that was so exciting because it was the first time, perhaps, that uh, someone like Tom Wolfe, like this kind of elite writer who, who came from Yale – uh, saw value in The art or the architecture Or the, the signage of the people uh, And it was part Of this whole new art movement uh, that, that Started around that same time called pop art right? In which you had mm-hmm. elite Artists like uh, Andy Warhol And Roy Liechtenstein Take their inspiration from Commercial Uh um, uh, aspects right whereas, whereas it's uh, for Andy Warhol the soup can for uh, Roy Liechtenstein it's the it's the um, uh, animation or it's the uh, cartoons that he then elevates to, to art but for for Tom Wolf you know, Las Vegas back then was really a, a unique unique place and it was the first time that uh, serious art artists and also architects started learning from uh, las vegas
0: yeah man okay and then so around the, is it the same similar time frame as the um you know when they're building these huge neon signs that they're also sort of like that the pools become so important and they're just trying to big bigger and build or they're trying to build bigger and bigger pools is that the same time ish
1: yeah. So what's interesting is there's somewhat of a shift. In the 1950s, it was really about the pool. And in the 1960s, it becomes about those those signs. And those signs were massive, by the way. They were much larger than the buildings. They refer to some of them were 200 feet tall. That's about the size of uh, you know a twenty or eighteen-story building.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and you know they, they were massive structure. They were also very very advanced. They included electronics. They had their own kind of electronic uh, pattern, like the Stardust sign, which which was this cloud that would kind of shimmer and uh, with stardust falling down. And uh, this was really uh in in terms of you know neon signage this was as good as as it gets right there was maybe broadway in the 1920s or ginza in new york ginza in in tokyo but uh if you if you're looking at uh neon signage where it really reached its peak Uh, it it was most arguably uh, Las Vegas. So you can make a similar argument for pool design um, in the 1950s and maybe nightclub design uh, today. And that, you know, there's every decade or so, there's a new symbol that uh, that gets elevated. And and first, arguably the first uh, symbol that, Resource used to distinguish themselves from another was was the pool back in the 40s and the 50s.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And why was it the pool uh, during the time? It was very difficult to drive from LA to Las Vegas. It was a very tough drive. It take about five to six hours, um, and then you know many cars. Uh, cars didn't have air conditioning yet, and then the, the moment you get to uh, uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, what what uh, one developer did, hotel developer did with the El Rancho, which was the first to be built on the trip was he very smartly placed a pool right next to uh, his uh, his resort, right. So that before people would get to the downtown where all the other kind of casinos were, none of which had a pool. There was this other place and, yeah, you know, you can imagine, you know, having driven for like five or six hours and you suddenly see this glistening pool and almost like an oasis. Yeah, really. In the skyline, uh, and, you know, people were inclined to to stop. And that's how the strip was born. And people stopped and and they stayed there and they didn't go further to, to downtown where kind of the hotspot was. They were very happy, very comfortable being just right there uh, at the uh, ranch show. And obviously, when that turned out a success, the next resort came, and, and that one was built even closer to uh, Los Angeles. So that would be the first one people would see. And, of course, <laughs> it had an even bigger pool. Uh, and then the third came. and that pool was even bigger and it had a different shape and it had more trees around it. And before you, you knew it, there was this, literally this war between, uh, pools and there was like underwater, um, uh, cocktail bars and there were floating crabs tables and even poolside slot machines. Uh, it, it, it really, uh, became, uh, the the pool really became a, a key element to differentiate, uh, and and you see that back in some of the advertising of of the resorts back in the fifties. So for this book, I spent a lot of time in the archives, uh, literally going through these boxes and boxes of historic material. But but what's so interesting is you see that in back in the fifties to get. People to come, they you know the pool was sort of a centerfold shot of every brochure, mm-hmm. and that worked out in many ways uh, because you know and, you know one thing that the Las Vegas team did for pu- publicity, and they were they were really good. They had a team of photographers that would go out to different resorts and take pictures of showgirls lying by the pool, but they also took pictures of regular people uh, who were there on vacation. Let's say. Uh, you know, the, the Johnsons from Minnesota, right? And, and they would take a picture of them uh-huh. near the pool and then they would send that back to Minnesota to the local newspaper. And right. very often the local newspaper would then publish that image of, you know, the Johnsons lounging by this pool and, and uh, it, it became a, kind of a key element of uh, of the image of Las Vegas back then, and during the 1950s, this was also a time where the United States starting to to suburbanize. Right, uh, mm-hmm. there's the building of the federal highway system. Uh, there's uh, subsidized uh, mortgages, and uh, very soon uh, there's this big migration movement that's happening from. Uh, the cities to the suburbs, right? A lot of it in um, in the Sun Belt, like California, and of course, the resort developers knew this, and and you know, a pool was really on top of mind, uh, especially in the 1950s when uh, you could get a home improvement loan to build a pool uh, in your own house. Uh, so you could go, even if you didn't have a pool at your own house, you could go to Las Vegas and experience one there. What's so interesting now is that if you go to Las Vegas today, you you still see that the pool is very important, but it's a completely different. Maybe back then it was, uh, you know, it was to get the suburbanite to come. Today the pool is a key marketing kind of ploy to. To get millennials uh, to come, right? And they they have uh, pools that are part of of nightclubs, mm-hmm. uh, and they do that because they can then extend their regular nightclub hours, right? You can have your nightclub open during the night, but then you can have your your day club or your pool party during the day. And right. if you look at the revenue that comes from these nightclubs, like Encore and The Wind, for instance. Uh, that is the world's highest grossing nightclub with a revenue of about $20 million, which is the size of a medium medium tech company almost. Yeah. Uh, so these are incredibly kind of profitable endeavors, and they managed to use the pool to kind of extend the opening hours uh, and really uh, kind of make it more of a 24-hour environment. Yeah. So. It's quite quite amazing. And if you look at around the world, it's it's very much a tactic that they're starting to use in other places as well. So Singapore uh, recently built its its uh, central business district around the Marina Bay Sands, right which is owned by Sheldon Edelson, the owner of the Venetian in, in Las Vegas. but but if you, the, the most impressive feature of that big resort, Uh, is its sky deck, which has this massive uh, infinity pool at the top. And it's an incredible image, right? You have this infinity pool floating, I don't know, maybe 700 feet in the air with the city of Singapore and the Marina Bay as a backdrop, right? It is such an iconic image. Yeah. And it is an image that almost becomes associated with, with Singapore. We think about Singapore today, or when we think about a luxury vacation or a luxury resort today, that is one of the images uh, people think about. I don't know if you've seen Crazy Rich Asians, but of course uh, there was a big scene in that pool, right? there is There will be no advertising video of the city of Singapore that does not include a shot of that um, infinity pool yeah but but the lessons learned were still in in Las Vegas where sort of the pool became really central to to hospitality uh, design uh, as well as other factors i mean there's an, there, there's another key innovation that we haven't talked about but that's sort of the integrated resort right and how how you have not just kind of a hotel and a casino like 60 years ago, but today they really are entire mini cities. They include uh, retail, they include uh, business, conventions, uh, sometimes even apartments. Uh, It includes many, many uh, things beyond just um, a hotel. Like Mm -hmm. uh, You go to the Strip today and there's tons of Uh, Cirque du Soleil shows, Broadway shows, uh, you name it. It is really becoming this kind of mixed-use entertainment complex rather than just uh, hospitality and gaming.
0: Right. Yeah, totally. Because that's, I mean, that's kind of a... A shift that I've been hearing about and reading about where, you know, my, I'm myself, I'm 25 and I really had never gambled and don't really have an interest in it. And that's kind of a, a trend with most uh, millennials, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So, and, and that's again, anticipated in the Las Vegas resort in that it's not just about gambling anymore. Actually, the majority of revenue is is from non-gaming related activities, whether going to a Michelin star restaurant or seeing DJ Chesto uh, in a nightclub Mm -hmm. or going to see Cirque du Soleil or or shopping. Uh, It's really the kind of non-gaming activities that they manage to do. And, yeah, you know, some some cities failed. Other, like gambling cities, like Atlantic City, for instance, always had trouble diversif- diversifying. But uh, Las Vegas really managed to stay ahead of the curve, and and uh, yeah, managed managed to do that. And today, for instance, the city of Macau, uh, which is also traditionally a casino city, is also trying to diversify. Um, and it's looking at Las Vegas, but also struggling to to do the same. But, but it made a lot of sense for Las Vegas because, you know, obviously you can attract people that gamble or just for um, uh, during the weekend. But how do you fill up your rooms during the week, right? So having, building a convention center in your complex, then you can uh, create business uh, and you can get people to come that have expense accounts <laughs> and fill up the the rooms during the week
0: right yeah totally and now they're uh, even building like a, they have like a, a hockey arena and they're getting the raiders there too too i think right
1: yeah so in sports right life sports and and yeah sports betting also is becoming more more popular but yeah no this is uh, this is uh, again a big shift uh boxing, uh yeah uh, uh yeah, the kind of live performances, concerts. Uh it's really more than just, you know, a place to put a coin in a slot machine.
0: Yeah, totally. So um I mean let's so I, we kind of talked about the fifties and sixties. What was Las Vegas like in the in the seventies?
1: Yeah, so in the in the seventies the there was a bit of a slump and uh, it Las Vegas became a little bit known as a, uh, a place where, uh, st- stars would go at the end of their career, like, like Elvis Presley. Uh, and it, it was, it was not, uh, innovating, uh, during that time. And some people say that was because the, there was a bit of an internal revolution that was happening. And that a lot of the if you if you look at the investments, um, a lot of the resorts that went up in uh, in the fifties and sixties, they were operated, owned, uh, operated, and you know behind the scenes by uh, the syndicates, right, by the mafia. And what happens at the end of the sixties, in order to uh, avoid that and and to kind of clean up the industry. What they did is they passed the corporate gaming law, which for the first time allowed corporations to own and operate uh, casino resorts, like companies like Hilton, for instance. Uh But uh, and and they brought in, you know, a lot more money than uh, the mafia ever had. Right. But that that whole shift that took uh, that took a while because. It took a while for, let's say, all uh, all the kind of mafia ownership to to end on one hand. And it wasn't always pleasant. If, if you watch the movie <laughs> Casino, right? you can see. Right. <laughs> uh, but then at the same time, it was also, uh, you know, corporations, I think at first, they were somewhat uncomfortable being in Las Vegas. And they started to build very similar buildings that they did in elsewhere, like Hilton. Uh, you know, these were not the most imaginative, uh, resorts that they put up around that time. And it wasn't until the nineties that, uh, that they started to break away from that mold and became kind of more, uh, unique, unique again. Right. Uh, And this was because of, uh, Uh, a casino, a bunch of casino operator, but one of the people who was very much influential around that time was Steve Wynn.
0: Right. And he was, and this is kind of when they started kind of building all the, the theme type of resorts and stuff like that. Right.
1: Yeah, that was then. And uh, it was at a time when the Disney corporation emerged as Uh, the the world's biggest entertainment uh, corporation. Okay. And it was really seen as a model. Disney wasn't just producing films, also theme parks, hotels. And they realized in Las Vegas that there was a demographic that they didn't quite tap into yet, which was the families. Or in other words, people that don't travel uh, without their kids. Right. And perhaps they went a little overboard, right? Building the treasure <laughs> islands with yeah. the sinking ship, or or I don't know the mirage or the volcano and, uh, yeah. and the lion, the lions, and you name it. The dolphin habitat, right? Uh, because you know, five years later into the experiment, they came to realize that the families or, or parents that travel with their children don't spend as much money as uh, single people do. And oh, right, yeah. There was this backlash uh, against it. And perhaps the, the one that, the resort that what most represents that backlash is the MGM Grand.
0: Uh-huh. I
1: don't know if you can um, imagine that right now, but it's that emerald green building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was once themed as the Wizard of Oz. And, and the entrance was actually a massive... Leah the lion head and you would have to walk through the, the lion's mouth to get into the lobby where you would be greeted by Dorothy and Tin Man and uh, in a in a cornfield. So that was uh, after two or three years, that was all of that was axed, right? The Tin what? Man was axed.
0: Wow, <laughs> and, I hadn't I had never realized that. That's crazy. And uh, they start to
1: untheme that uh, Disney, the, those Disney images. So that's why, I mean, the facade is still emerald green because obviously it's very expensive to, to, to change the facade. Yeah. Uh, but that was the initial theme. And it even included a, a theme park. Uh, <laughs> and obviously that theme park was also rolled up and now it has a couple high-end condo towers in the back.
0: Yeah. Man, oh man, that's fascinating. I had, I never realized that, but that makes total sense. Because I, it's kind of weird that that thing is bright green. So it actually was, you know, Wizard of Oz themed for for two or three years.
1: Yeah, for a couple of years, and then they spent a couple hundred million dollars in removing that the, the themery. There's <laughs> this urban legend that says that they removed that massive lion's head, which was like ten stories tall, the entrance to the to the resort, yeah. because they thought. It was auspicious for Chinese guests to walk inside a lion's mouth. It would create bad feng shui. Wow. Uh, but I'm not sure if this is actually true. But that's one of the rumors uh, or the urban legends, so to speak, of, you know, why this big uh, lion's head was removed. And now you just have a smaller golden lion statue Yeah. Uh, next to the um, resort.
0: Man, that's interesting because I, yeah, I grew up in the, you know, in the 90s and we would, living in Southern California, that was like exactly what me and my family would do is go, we would all hop in the car or the motorhome and go head out to Las Vegas and and hit up Circus Circus or Excalibur or or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. You know, it was, it was for the family then. So that's interesting. I wonder if, uh, I bet they did if, if Disney ever, uh, you know, considered looking into building a resort in Las Vegas kind of when all that was happening. That would be interesting to, to find out.
1: Yeah, that is, a, that is an interesting question the excalibur, in a way, kind of is the one that maybe t- tries to go after Disney most right with the castle the fake castle, <laughs> although it wasn't quite as elegant as uh Cinderella castle in uh, in Disneyland because part of the problem was that you have this massive mega resort of a couple thousand rooms um and that doesn't quite fit with the castle uh, aesthetic uh, the the Neuschwanstein. Uh, castle aesthetic that uh, that Disney represents, which is very elegant and and and, and very refined. Mm-hmm. So that was always a problem, and I think Excalibur. Also, when you when you when you go there, uh, you know this was built very quickly, and and there's a construction process that we call fast tracking because the pace of development was so fast on this on the strip. What happened is that uh, the foundations or the building was being constructed even before the final blueprints were finished. Uh, so you can save time right if you if you would just simply design the whole building, which may take two to three years and then build it afterwards, you know the whole process may take six years or something, but if you would actually start building as soon as you have, I would say the basic structure. Of the building designed, you can shave off uh, a year or maybe more. Oh, but that leads to sometimes very kind of uncoordinated uh, design, and and you can certainly kind of feel that at the uh, at the Excalibur. Some parts they feel a little bit unfinished or uh, out of scale, or so it's not it's not the most uh, impressive feat of uh, refine architecture so to say
0: <laughs> yeah i can imagine and well you know when they're working to change keep up with these trends and like things change every 10 years to take 6 yeah. years to build something that's you know that's tough to justify i guess
1: yeah that's true it's it's also an economic equation like developers know how long this building stays relevant um, and you know they need to make their money back and and not a lot of time before uh, the building becomes obsolete. So the average building's lifespan is maybe 50, 75 years. But on the Strip, you cannot find a single building that dates back to the to the 40s. Mm-hmm. There's actually only one building that, that you can find uh, on, all the way on the south side of the Strip. That is from the kind of original 1940s. But the only reason that building still exists is, is because it was put on wheels and it was moved. <laughs> uh, and this, that is the little church of the West, uh, which is this small uh, church that was a copy of a, of a real Western church. It was built in the 40s for people to get married in so uh that is uh that is the oldest building of that of that time period in Las Vegas that you can still um uh, experience wow, and that's maybe amazing. yeah yeah it's it's also really a, a quite special um special building. A lot of people get married there still uh, and it's uh it really takes you back to the to the forties.
0: So, um, so where are we now or like what, what kind of, uh, evolution are we at in Vegas now or like what's kind of on the horizon of things changing?
1: Yeah. I mean, the big, the big change came, I think 15 years ago with project city center when for the first time there were like celebrity architects and big, big firms kind of involved in the design of. Uh, resorts on the strip before it was always I would say like local architects um, and perhaps the architecture was inferior to the image uh, or the marketing right where uh, like the signage, for instance right uh, the signage, but now you really have uh, world class architecture actually, the company I worked for we also did a, a building in that complex. Uh, But, you know, many other big-name firms uh, were there, like Norman Foster, Donnie Libeskind, and Rafael Vignoli. Uh, So that's really quite significant. And and the Strip became this epicenter of um, elite architecture and arts. So Project City Center, too, has this kind of uh, art collection that everyone can see with really big-name artists, um, Oldenburg and uh, big sculptors. uh, Maya Lin, uh that, that all have a piece there, and Jenny Holzer. Uh, so if you if you want your fill of art and architecture, I think uh, you know this trip is actually a pretty good place because you get to see a lot of uh, kind of contemporary architecture in a, you know all relatively uh, close distance from another. So that is a, that is a trend. There's the other trend which is. Uh, quite significant is on sustainable architecture and green building, and we often don't think about that when we think about Las Vegas, uh, because we think, "Oh, this place is unsustainable. It's built in the desert." And obviously, you know that's true. You should not build in the desert. But on the other hand, you know, uh, if you're building desert, at least you're not <laughs> destroying natural resources or fertile land. But let let let, let that aside. The big thing here is uh, water preservation, right? Uh, like how can you sustain a population of, you know, more than a million people uh, with a limited supply of, uh, of water? And yeah. Las Vegas is actually really ahead of the curve in terms of uh, water preservation. What a lot of people don't realize is that all the water you drink from the tap in Las Vegas, all the water you shower in in your hotel, all of that water is recycled. Oh, it wow. comes from uh, Lake Mead because all the wastewater in Las Vegas gets treated and then pumped back into the, the Lake Mead. It's the same um, supply for freshwater. And uh, obviously, this is not something they'd like to advertise, <laughs> but it is a very green feat, right? Yeah. Uh, none of this is uh, – well, actually, there's a few exceptions, but by and large – uh, the vast majority of the water is, uh, is recycled. And then there's a lot of you know, drip irrigation. There's low-flow shower heads. And when you think about it, when you're designing a resort that's 4,000 rooms, you can spend a little money on research or, or maybe trying to find a uh, low-flow shower head uh, simply because of the scale, right? And yeah. you can save money uh, that way, but that also makes kind of environmental sense. So, in terms of sustainability, I would say that uh, that the hospitality design or the resorts on the strip are quite uh, quite advanced. Uh, so that's another key trend. And obviously, with climate change and and kind of desertification uh, of the planet, areas getting warmer, this is only going to be a bigger uh, bigger issue. Uh, so that's that's something that they had to address there for decades, simply because there was a finite amount of water, um, and they, uh, I mean, they're struggling with it, right? It's still uh, still a big problem because if you look at Lake Mead, it's at it's almost lowest ever levels, uh, but still the the city adapts and they find new ways to uh, to survive and and make this a uh, kind of a thriving uh, economy so so in terms of sustainability too it's um it's interesting right now to look at uh, look at this trip
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of like the uh the less sexy side of things i guess that they're not marketing and everything but uh incredibly important because if you show up and there's no water (laughs) things aren't going to work very well
1: that's right that's right and probably the third thing is the millennials right how do we get the millennials excited about coming here and, you know, they're giving them many things like, you know, nightclub shows, restaurants, and new types of experiences. Um, and I think they're doing a, a pretty good job in in that. So it's definitely still uh, ahead of the curve in, in many ways. And it's maybe no longer growing as quickly as it once was, I would say, you know, before the crisis. Uh, but still, it's, uh, it's found its mojo again, and, <laughs> and it's still uh, re- reinventing. Obviously, the big thing right now is global expansion. Like Companies like MGM Mirage and Las Vegas Sands, uh, they're like Las Vegas companies, but now they're operating globally. So they're finding other markets like Macau, like Singapore, uh, Osaka. Uh, so, so that's another thing to think about, that Las Vegas has become almost like a global product. Right, uh, it's that idea of the mixed use or the integrated resort that's super fashionable. That has you know celebrity chefs, nightclubs, uh, uh, contemporary architecture, uh, amazing art. That product is actually getting quite popular worldwide, and Las Vegas companies are, are simply making more money abroad than they are, uh, back, back home. So they're focusing a lot of their energy, uh, internationally.
0: Wow. So they're just kind of using the lessons they've learned from Vegas and just, and almost duplicating those things in other places.
1: Yeah. And then you could almost say they're, they are, they're outdoing Vegas in other places like the Marina Bay Sands is, is, you know, if, if that resort would stand on this trip, it would be the most spectacular resort in maybe, you know, west of the Mississippi River. Yeah. Uh, it's, in a, it's in a phenomenal building. So it's a little hard to describe it. But, but, yeah, imagine three very skinny towers that are like 700 feet tall. They're all uh, separated from another. And then on top of those three towers, you've got this massive platform that's cantilevering out, maybe 200 feet and on that platform, like we discussed, you have uh, you have this infinity pool, right, with a backdrop of the entire city. So that is uh, amazing, right? A truly amazing place. And if you go there, it's it's not just the the platform. You have these very tall atria. You have a music, contemporary art museum, laser shows. <laughs> uh, it's it's truly uh, kind of it's yeah you it's it's it goes beyond what what they what was built in yeah Yeah.
0: man so it seems like tell me if this is a fair you know kind of assumption because it seems like almost maybe the shift around you know 15 years ago or so where you said there was kind of more local architects doing stuff it seems like maybe architects in general sort of didn't take Las Vegas very seriously, but then there's been sort of a, a shift where they kind of have learned from it and now it's become, you know, more important or so. Is that kind of fair to say, Would you think?
1: I think it's fair to say. but At the same time, it's still a controversial topic. A lot of architects or, you know, people see themselves as culturally sophisticated, they would snub at, at a city like Las Vegas, right? Because it also represents what the people want, right? What the people like. And right. yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. So it's, it's still like if, I, you know, some of my architect friends, if, if I start talking about Las Vegas, there was, oh, the first reaction would be, I hate Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> But that's in a way that's also a good reaction because it provokes interest, right uh-huh. uh, That's maybe better than no reaction at all, but so, uh, that is, yeah
0: well, I mean, so I guess that just makes me think, so is that kind of the philosophy of of Vegas, where you said it's it's people first, like we we design for what people want, whereas there's another just architecture design philosophy that's like that's the opposite of that?
1: yeah so I think that's still the case right so because if you if if twenty years from now it turns out that you know the people no longer want contemporary architecture they're going to take those buildings down right there's no doubt about that yeah um, and that, that may not happen in other places right where there's historic preservation committees or where there's you know city city governments or, or mayors or Uh, Because, you know, the cultural elite has no say in what goes on on the Las Vegas Strip. Ultimately, this is a a place of commerce. Mm -hmm. It's a place of, um, you know, a few companies, corporations, executives that are looking at the bottom line. And and if culture or high-end culture or elite culture no longer sells, then elite op- culture will probably uh, have to go for something else.
0: They're <laughs> like, "Hell, let's just whatever we need to make money. Let's build it. And <laughs> let's let's do what we got to do here." Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah, much. dude. This but is interesting.
1: still, yeah, it's still interesting to think that <laughs> that philosophy led to culture being built, right? And this contemporary architecture and this contemporary art, because suddenly they realized. You know, we can actually uh, turn this into a profit. So now you go there and there's all these things that y- you don't get in the, in the local museum, right? You get them in these uh, resorts. You can go see, you know, million-dollar art uh, there, but you cannot see that in the, in the local museum. So it's commerce that was re- responsible for that, uh, that amazing art that's there today. So it's quite, quite impressive.
0: Right. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. And I mean, and probably in reality, the best the best, I don't know, solution is kind of a, a hybrid of both things where you're kind of building for people and what they want. But you're also, mm-hmm. you know, it's also not that, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Las Vegas is really kind of the the extreme. Yeah. Uh, but other other cities. Yeah, you know, some cities don't evolve at all, right? So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm from Europe and yeah, you know, I'm from a small town and uh, that's you know, eight hundred years old, this medieval town, and in the center you will you will not see anything change, right? Or you go to Venice and you know those those places are really frozen in time and yes. and sure they may have kind of the uh I would say the advantage in terms of you know being a cultured place as we think of it but at the same time uh they're also kind of open-air museums in a way they're no longer evolving and they kind of lost some some of the dynamism that the growing city uh would have or maybe that the city had 700 years ago yeah uh, before it was built so so that, uh, that excitement, uh, you, don't, you don't get there. You, you go there and you know what to expect. Uh, but in Las Vegas, uh, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, you know, what it will be 10 years from now.
0: Yeah, totally. Man, that's cool. And I love it, man. We can have both can exist on, on this earth and we can, you know, experience both and, and have fun with each of them, right?
1: You're absolutely right. Yeah. It doesn't need to be all the same. Uh, that will be, <laughs> be very boring. And even within a city, you can have different. Yeah. Uh, elements, right. So. Right.
0: Totally. Dude, Stefan, this is awesome. So love talking with you. Thank you so much for being on. Let's tell people um, your book, The Strip Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream. Where's the best place to grab that?
1: It's, it's on uh, in most stores or Amazon or wherever you want to find it. Uh, you should be able to find it, yeah.
0: Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll link it up to Amazon, too, so people can check it out easily. And then should we direct people to your website, too?
1: Yeah, that would be great. i published some other books, so they want to take a look. They're, um, they're welcome, to.
0: Yes, yeah, you have a bunch of other books. And the website is just stephanal.com, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we'll have a link down there for folks to click on, and get to that stuff easy. But man, this is good. And you've got some like TED talks on you know autonomous cars and parking spaces, and there's a lot of stuff when you kind of dig in. You 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 have a you lead an interesting life.
1: Yeah. Well, if you're an urban designer, you need to also be just like Las Vegas. You need to be ahead of the trends. And obviously, there's big big trends right now going on in urban design and. And one of them is uh, new forms of mobility, automation. So, so we try to think about that when we design, um, design cities or neighborhoods simply because we're not designing them for one or two years. We're, we're designing them for you know, 20, 50, maybe 100 years down the line. And So we try to anticipate those, uh, those new developments
0: hmm. So I guess when you're sorry, real quick, because I'm, I'm just interested, but um, kind of when you're doing like um, urban designing and city planning of stuff for like that specific place you mentioned over in, in Asia that grew extremely quickly, are you sort of like starting with a blank slate here or do you have stuff you're exist, working with that already exists generally?
1: yeah so sometimes it varies right sometimes there's a a few kind of industrial buildings. Uh, sometimes it's reclaimed land, and then it's really a blank slate. other other times they are like natural conditions you have to work with like uh, like a wetland or uh, existing trees you're trying to design around. Uh, so it really um it really varies. Uh, we, we try not to design with the idea of the blank slate. There's always something there. Um, and it's always good to to begin with kind of the local conditions because at the end of the day, that's what will make the place feel more authentic uh, when you kind of look at inspiration from the surroundings or the site itself. Uh, and that will then allow it to, you know, create, get its own identity rather than importing some style from elsewhere. So so we always try to see what's what's there and we, we, we start to um, we, we try to work with that as much as we can.
0: Yeah, man, that's interesting. That sounds like such a uh, almost like frustratingly large uh, project to to work on and to think about everything that would, you know, go on in, in developing something like that.
1: Yeah, it's a big, I mean, it's a, urban design is a, it's a tough profession also because it, it takes many years before something that large gets built. Yeah. It's never quite the way you want it to be. Right. There's a lot of kind of politics that gets into play. Design will change a lot. But at the end of the day, it can be deeply satisfying um, because obviously, you know, when, you, when you're creating public spaces... Uh, or, or parks or streets, then you're really kind of making an impact on, you know, how people live. And, and we always try to leave the world a little better, uh, than it is. And, mm-hmm. and that, that is, uh, the nice side of that, um, that type, the line of work. If you're an artist, like a sculptor, you also get to make three dimensional things, but you know, you just work uh, with yourself and you have an instant result we we don't quite get that satisfaction of yeah. uh, that instant gratification but it's a little different because we we do have an impact that's uh, that can be quite substantial
0: yeah man that's cool i feel like we could almost do a whole nother podcast on uh, on <laughs> yeah. urban design and and all your that sounds good yeah maybe next year or something i'll, I'll try to think of some
1: stories for you and then
0: yeah dude yeah nice. that would be fun let's let's maybe do that sounds good Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Stefan. Uh, we'll wrap it up here, um, but really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all this stuff. It was, it was really fun.
1: My pleasure. Uh, thank you, Travis. I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, there you have it. That was episode 72. Thanks for sticking around and listening to it. Hope you enjoyed that and uh, found it interesting like I did. Uh, I had no idea that the MGM was once themed as the Wizard of Oz, but it makes total sense. So maybe that just shows that I'm young and uh, wasn't around for that stuff. But that's interesting. I love learning stuff like that. Um, so thanks for being here again. This was episode 72. Thank you to Stefan for being here on the show and and sharing all that interesting information uh if you like this episode i encourage you to subscribe because i make a bunch of these like this with just uh people that i find interesting on and i would guess that other people find interesting too so uh i encourage you to click the subscribe button it's free you're not going to get charged some people think that podcasts cost money some of them do but this one's absolutely free uh so thank you for listening again my name is travis DeRose. uh if you want to share this with your friends and family i would super appreciate that if you know anybody that you think may find this epistro epistro interesting uh just share it with them send it to them in an email or over social media or just say it with your face uh old school way on the phone whatever um, that really does help to uh, to spread the word of the show and uh, i I would very much appreciate that so thank you um, you can connect with me send me an email to travis at curiosityness dot com let me know your thoughts opinions ideas for future episodes or guests on the show. Uh, I love hearing that kind of stuff and um, Instagram's a good place to hang out with us too. I post some, uh, curiosityness facts on there every once in a while about just, uh, smaller bite-sized information that you may find interesting. So that's, uh, on Instagram at curiosityness podcast. Someone stole the curiosityness username. So I had to put podcast on there. Um, But that's it. I'm going to stop rambling and let you get on with your day. If you're even listening to this at this long, at this end, over an hour here now. So if you are, thank you. And if you're not, then you're already gone and not hearing this. So goodbye.